Our scripture lesson for this morning comes to us from the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, verses 1 through 15. Listen now for God's word to you. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank, and then he went in, his, in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. At that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. God said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel as king over Aram. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we all have our favorite stories in Scripture, and the story that I have just read for you here this morning is one of my favorites in the entire Bible, God meeting Elijah in the sound of sheer silence. But there is a lot that happens that leads Elijah to this place, to this place where God encounters him in the sound of sheer silence. Elijah is a prophet, an Old Testament prophet, and In those early days when the kings still ruled over the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, the the prophets were assigned to keep the kings accountable. So in the words of one of my Old Testament professors, the prophets were representatives of the earthly king to 
or representatives of the heavenly king to the earthly king. That they were meant to keep the king in line, keep him on the straight and narrow with what God has called him to do. Now, as you can imagine, that's not the most safe profession, keeping the king in line, holding the king accountable. Kings are known for arbitrary power, and they can be quick-tempered, and they can threaten your life. So this call to keep the king accountable, the prophets have to find ways of engaging the king. So in one of my other favorite stories in the Old Testament, we have the prophet Nathan. And Nathan is the prophet to King David. David is one of the, the greatest kings in all of, all of Israel's history. In fact, he's the greatest king. We talk about Jesus being the son of David. And so we know the story of, of David committing his sin with Bathsheba. We call it David's adultery with Bathsheba. But it's actually a lot worse than that. He really commits assault against Bathsheba. And, and so Nathan has to confront David about this. And, and so Nathan comes up with an idea. He tells this story about all the things that David had done. He tells this sort of parable. And as David is listening to the story, he is so upset with what he's hearing that he says something has to be done about it. And then Nathan says, David, you are that man. It's a sort of poetic, creative way of engaging the king. And then, of course, there's prophets like Isaiah, whose words we hear a lot during the season of Advent. Isaiah, who paints this picture of the future to come to inspire faithfulness in the present moment. Elijah, though, Elijah has a very different approach. Elijah is like a blunt force instrument. Uh, he is a no-nonsense prophet. He is very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. We heard it in this story. Uh, zeal is a very good word to describe Elijah. And zeal is not necessarily a bad thing. Zeal can be an incredibly good thing. See, Elijah has been called to address one of the greatest concerns in this period of, of Israel's history, in this period of of biblical history. Uh, the people of God have strayed away. They have started to serve other gods, and mostly at this point in the story, they are serving the Canaanite god Baal. And so uh, Elijah has been called to help bring the people back to God. And so he takes this no-nonsense, blunt-force instrument approach with his king, King Ahab, and his wife Jezebel. We know that name Jezebel. It still has a certain connotation with us today, right? And then, of course, there's King Ahab, who the writers of First and Second Kings say did more evil in the sight of God than anyone before him. I don't know how you want to be remembered, um, but I'm sure that's not the way you want to be remembered. Uh, Ahab is the most evil king, and so Elijah feels the zealousness. He feels the, the sense of urgency in the call that he has been given. The problem, though, is that Elijah in his sense of call, in his sense of what he's called to do, his sense of urgency about all of this, has developed quite the Messiah complex. Uh, he thinks that he's the only one who can do it. He thinks that, that if he was gone, that somehow God would, would be without recourse, that God would just be wringing God's hands and say, what am I supposed to do? But the truth is, is that there are other prophets just like Elijah doing all of the work that he uh, himself is doing. Just before this story, Elijah meets 100 other prophets of God who are doing the same exact work that he's doing. And yet, Elijah is stuck in this place of self-aggrandizement. He has overblown his sense of importance to all of this. Um, his zealousness has led him to this sort of uh, Messiah complex. And that's where that zeal, I think, takes sort of a, a dark and twisted turn. Uh, so Elijah decides he's going to settle it once and for all. 
He's gonna, they're going to settle once and for all, who is the true God? Who is the God that the Israelites should serve? Is it Yahweh, the God who led them out of slavery in Egypt, who has pledged covenant loyalty to them? Or is it Baal, the Canaanite God? And so Elijah goes to the 450 prophets of Baal, and he sets up a little competition. He says, we'll set up two altars. You'll set up one to Baal, and I'll set up one to, to Yahweh, and we'll put our, our offerings on it. But we won't set them on fire. Instead, we will pray to our respective gods and see who answers, see who sends fire down from heaven. And all of the, the people of Israel are, Israel are going to come out and watch this spectacle. It's like a pay-per-view event in today's culture. Um, and so the competition begins. The, the prophets of Baal begin praying to Baal. They pray all day long, and there's, still, there's no answer. They even begin these rituals, and, and still no answer. And then, if, then Elijah trash-talks them. Uh, this is not me giving creative license to the story. It's actually there in the biblical text. Elijah says, maybe you should try and wake Baal up. Maybe he's sleeping. Uh, who needs TV when you have the Old Testament, right? Um, and so finally, it's Elijah's turn. He prays and immediately God answers him and the, the fire comes down from heaven. It consumes the offering and all the people are convinced that, that God, the God of Israel, is the God that they should be serving. It's this great moment of success for Elijah, and it would have been good enough for him to simply stop there. But Elijah, the zealous, the overzealous prophet of God, uh, keeps going. He assembles a mob, and they chase down the 450 prophets of Baal, and they slaughter every last one of them. And we would rightly question and criticize Elijah's actions here, um, this cycle of violence that continues, that Elijah acts with violence toward the prophets of Baal, and then King Ahab, who's kind of weak-willed throughout the entire biblical narrative, King Ahab goes back to Queen Jezebel and tells her all that Elijah has done, and that's when Queen Jezebel says, uh, calls out a hit on Elijah, threatens to take his life, to make his life like the lives of one of those prophets of Baal that he just killed. And so Elijah, this no-nonsense prophet of God, this overly zealous of God, who never backed down from a confrontation, never backed down from a fight, decides to run away. He is deeply afraid and runs away into the wilderness. He runs 70 miles into the wilderness out of fear for his life towards Beersheba. And then he lies down underneath the solitary broom tree. He lies there, it says, because he wants to, in a sense, end his life. Uh, he's lying there underneath the broom tree in a sense of despondency. He's in a, a spiral of self-hatred and self-doubt, of wondering what was it all for. He's exhausted, he's weary, and he's worn out. Mount Carmel was supposed to be the moment where everything changed. And yet he finds himself here underneath the solitary broom tree. And he's given up. But God hasn't given up on Elijah. It says in the story that an angel comes and visits Elijah. And I think the thing we should remember in the, in the Old Testament, we get these visions of the angels. And, and really, these are just manifestations of God, God's self. So this is God visiting Elijah underneath the solitary broom tree. And Elijah falls asleep, and then the angel wakes him up and gives him a snack. And and then it happens a second time. And I've told you all before that this story is a reminder that we should never underestimate the spiritual power of a snack and a nap. Um, 
And then he is told to go on a 40-day journey, because it's always 40 days in the Bible. 40 is the sacred, holy number. He takes a 40-day journey out into the wilderness, and he goes uh, to Mount Horeb, which is just a name for Mount Sinai, uh, the holy mountain of God, the place where the Ten Commandments uh, were given. And what's amazing to me in this story is that God comes and finds Elijah in this moment of great despondency. And, and, and God allows Elijah to have the space to feel all that he is feeling, to feel that deep sense of sadness. And in a real sense, this is a clinical depression. I don't think it's a stretch to say that. I think that's what's happening in this story. And God comes and, and sits with him. And, and what's amazing to me is that God doesn't launch into platitudes. God doesn't say to Elijah, put your big boy pants on, let's keep going. You know, he, God doesn't, God doesn't say, uh, you know, look at all the good things that you have in your life. God doesn't even say, look, Elijah, you're not actually alone. There's a hundred other prophets just like you. Because what matters in that moment are not the facts. Because what's informing Elijah's reality at this point is the fact that he feels alone. The fact that he feels like he is the only one. The fact that he is in this spiral of self-hatred and self-doubt. And God meets Elijah in that space. And God sits with Elijah. God gives him a snack and a nap. And then God takes him out to Mount Horeb, the holy mountain of God. And Elijah is told to stand in the entrance to the cave because God is about to pass by. And then there comes a great wind, a wind that's so great that it's breaking apart mountains and rocks, it says. I don't know what kind of Midwest tornado that is, but it's a strong wind. And then, but God is not in the wind. And there's an earthquake. It shakes the foundations of all that there is. And God's not in the earthquake either. And then a fire falls down from heaven, just like the fire that fell on Mount Carmel. God's not in the fire either. There comes then the sound of sheer silence. Silence that's so quiet, you can almost hear it. Silence that's enough to sort of break that cycle of despondency and despair that Elijah is experiencing. Silence that reminds him that God has always been, is in that moment, and will always be faithful. And I think that that is what Elijah needed in that moment. He didn't need the grand spectacle God, the God who brings fire down from heaven, who shakes the foundations of the earth. But God needed a God who, or Elijah needed a God who could come and sit with him in that moment of silence, to see him as he actually was, to see him in all that he was experiencing. You know, as a parent, I am uh, pretty well acquainted with children's movies at this point. Um, one of the fun things that we've been able to do in our house is to uh, show Axel some of the classics from our childhood in the 1990s, the golden age of Disney, you know. Uh, yes, I grew up in the 90s, another reminder of how young I am. Um, I try not to make that point all the time, but it just seems to come out. Um, you know, things like The Lion King or Aladdin, and you know, Axel's a, a big fan of Toy Story, you know, the first Pixar movie, the first animated movie that started this whole trend of animated movies. He's also a he loves the Cars movies. Um, if you're ever wondering what to get for him, like we do sometimes in our house, just buy him a Lightning McQueen. Um, 
But then one of the movies that Heather and I have really enjoyed, one that speaks more to us than it does to Axel, is the movie Inside Out uh, from 2015. I'm glad that some of you have seen it because I'm going to talk about it and there might be some spoilers. So, um, but I feel like a movie that's seven years old, if you haven't seen it at this point, that's on, that's on you. <laughs> um, so the movie Inside Out is about a, a young girl named Riley. She's kind of going, starting puberty, it seems like. Uh, but it's not really about her. It's more about her personified emotions. Um, these emotions that control everything that Riley thinks and feels. Um, so these personified emotions of, of joy, disgust, uh, fear, anger, and sadness. They all run Riley's head. They have this little control panel where they control things that are going on in Riley's life. Uh, they control her memories. So every day when the memories are, are done, they, they send them down the tube to long-term memory where they can be uh, stored up. And so as the movie begins, Riley is really in this great and happy place. And, and joy, the emotion joy, is really running the show. Uh, Riley lives in Minnesota with her family. She's uh, an only child. She loves to play hockey, as people in Minnesota seem to do. And everything is good. She has this great group of friends. Um, but then the for sale sign comes out in front of the house. Her dad's been transferred, and he has, they have to move to San Francisco. And so Riley has to move to this new town, this new place, a place that is emotionally and geographically very different from Minnesota. You know, people don't play hockey all that often in San Francisco. Maybe they do, but... It's not really the thing that San Francisco is known for. Um, And so through all of this, Riley starts to experience sadness. You know, once happy memories of her playing with her friends or playing hockey, they now become sad because those memories are now gone. The the emotion sadness starts to take over and Joy starts to freak out about this. She says in the movie, I'm not really sure why sadness is even here. And so through this series of adventures, I won't give away the whole entire movie, um, these emotions learn to have more complex uh, understandings of what's going on. So memories that were once entirely happy can now be a mixture of both happiness and sadness. So that memory of playing hockey with her friends can be both happy for the joy that was there, but also sad because it's gone. Um, And there's a scene in the movie where joy and sadness, where they're lost somewhere inside of Riley's brain, Uh, they've fallen out of the control center and they've lost somewhere inside of Riley's head. And they meet a long-lost imaginary friend of Riley, someone named Bing Bong. Um, and, uh, and, and this imaginary friend is really upset, and he's crying. And, and Joy starts doing this little song and dance, trying to, trying to make Bing Bong feel better, and it do- nothing helps. And then sadness comes and sits right next to him, and, sa- and he feels better. And, and Joy is sort of dumbfounded by this and says, how did you do that? And Sadness just simply says, I kind of know how that feels, and I just went and sat next to him. And that's what what brings him out of his state. You know, I think that that's what happens here in this story, that God comes and finds Elijah in this moment of great sadness, this moment of a clinical depression, this moment where everything is hard around him. And God comes and sits with him, gives him the snack and the nap, the things that he needs to restore his soul. You know, as I've been trying to listen attentively to what's going on in the lives of others, trying to be just listening in on conversations happening around here. I think the, the truth is, is that we are all in some ways finding ourselves beneath the solitary broom tree right now. Um, you know, it's January, the sun doesn't really shine, and that doesn't help either. Um, but the, the COVID pandemic has continued on. Um, it's starting, we're going to get into year three of this year. And it's, it's hard, it's difficult, and it's made our, it, it, it's, it's been 
incredibly frustrating. And we, we might be experiencing all manner of emotions about it, sadness or anger or frustration or just plain sick and tired, disgust, just plain sick and tired of talking about it. And one of the truths is, is that our mental health matters. Um, what we are feeling, what our emotions are, all of those things matter. We have talked a lot about physical health, and rightfully so over the last three years and, or two years, and all of that is incredibly important. But what also matters is our mental health and our mental well-being. You know, I think that sometimes we think of God as the grand spectacle God, the one who's going to come in and simply fix everything. You know, like the, in Superman, you know, with, with uh, Christopher Reeves, where uh, Superman comes in and just reverses the, the spin of the earth and everything is fixed magically. And maybe God does some of that. But I think the real power of God's presence, the real power of God's connection is that we have someone who sees us in all that we are experiencing, in all that we are feeling. And I want to give us all permission. I think it just needs to be said that we can feel and we can experience whatever we need to in this moment. That's what I'm reminded of in the stories I'm reminded of every time I watch Inside Out, is that our emotions, our feelings, our experiences, they are just reactions to what's going on around us, and they are uh, part of what, they're just part of it. They're just, they're just there. And God sees it. And God comes and sits with us and, and joins us in those moments. You know, in this moment where we are all kind of finding ourselves under the solitary broom tree, I think where our faith comes in, uh, comes in effect is our, our trust in the God who will find us underneath the solitary broom tree, the God who will find us in the sound of sheer silence. And that presence is healing. That presence can lift us up. And just like it did for Elijah, that presence can help us to keep going. Thanks be to God. Amen.